One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello! Welcome back to another episode of The Delicious Legacy. With me, your host, Thomas Dinas. And for another episode, we have another archaeogastronomical adventure. I'm very excited that my guest today is um, Farel Monaco, an amazing food archaeologist and experimental archaeologist, and she is based in USA. But she's got long, long experience in ancient Roman foodways, cooking and especially baking and, and uh, making bread in ancient Rome and Pompeii, Herculaneum, Ostia and so on. She's a winner of uh, the best special interest food blog by Saver magazine and she's also writing about bread in the ancient Greco-Roman world at um, National Geographic, at Atlas Obscura and she has articles on BBC as well. I'll post links with her work and her website on uh, the show notes, so check them out if you're interested. There's so much information there, especially on her own blog about bread and ancient bread-making techniques, and of course, other recipes about cheese and so on. Oh, and we're talking about cheese on the podcast as well. Smoked cheese. Yeah, talking about cheese and specifically about smoked uh, Velabran cheese, which is from the famous uh, Velabrum, the district north of the Forum Boarium, where all the cattle market was, and that was the city um, underbelly of the ancient Rome. There was uh, basically where all the conspiracies happening, all the market was, all the, the miller and the butcher and the soothsayer was, were there, and... Yes, so we have information from Plautus and from uh, other ancient Roman writers about this area that uh, they were making this famous um, smoked cheese, which is uh, all very exciting, as you'll find out uh, uh, later on. Our conversation ranged uh, in uh, many different topics, but uh, obviously we talked, um, but we talked about her experience in um, hands-on uh, food archaeology and how she started her work with uh, the culinary aspect and the sensory part of um, the ancient Roman food. Our conversation uh, started about her first uh, work at excavations at uh, uh, Monte Testaccio in uh, Rome, which is actually something I talked about in the episode uh, for um, the olive oil, the history of olive oil, the episode um, all the way back in um, season two, episode one, in October the 3rd, 2021. And basically, in, in a short, Monte statue is a huge um, hill in Rome. It's all made by broken pottery that they were used to store olive oil. 
Um, yeah, we talked about this ancient olive oil. How did it taste? Um, how did the Romans liked it? Um, pungent, peppery, or soft and mild. Then our conversation went all the way to the bakers. Who were the bakers? Who were baking bread? Who were cooking in the ancient uh, Roman households? And if these people were aware of their own um, talent, let's say, and if um, actually they were treated uh, humanely or they were criminals and um, what, what was the environment they worked in. So all these aspects which we don't really usually consider about the ancient world, um, we kind of touched upon in our conversation today. Very interesting stuff. So without um, further ado, I would like uh, you to enjoy this um, conversation. And listeners, remember the podcast can only happen with your generous support. So please go to Patreon and if you can, support the podcast from $3 a month. Otherwise, you could leave a lovely review and share your podcast with friends. Thank you so much. And now, Pharrell Monaco. Pharrell Monaco, welcome to Delicious Legacy Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to have you here, obviously. Um, You've are one of um, the people I follow online and I've read your blogs and your stuff for many years now and I'm really excited and happy to have you here so we can chat a little bit about ancient food in general and um, romance more specific but uh, yeah before we start maybe tell us a little bit about yourself how did you end up to the ancient Roman Clebanus? <laughs> Let's see so you know my name is Farrell Monaco I'm a classical slash experimental archaeologist that researches Roman food, more specifically uh, Greco-Roman breads, and I recreate them using the archaeological, literary, and artistic records. Fantastic. So, and I, I studied, um, I, I'm still studying, preparing to undertake my PhD at the University of Leicester in Britain. Mm. And so I started my education at the University of Leicester about 11 years ago, and I just pushed my focus towards Roman archaeology. I mean, there's a brilliant program at Leicester. So they got some of the the best Roman food archaeologists or food-related archaeologists in the world on staff there. David Mattingly, who's very learned on the olive oil trade in the Mediterranean. Um, Pim Allison, who's just retired, but she was, um, she is the expert on Roman domesticity. Um, uh, kitchens, the layouts of uh, domestic spaces, utensils in domestic spaces, etc. So I got to work with um, some of the best advisors as I shifted my focus towards food trade initially, marine and river trade of food, the distribution networks along the Mediterranean. And then as it moved towards Rome, the port systems in Rome, the river ports on the Tiber, the uh, storage and distribution centers in modern-day Testaccio, which are still beneath those buildings that are there. And so it began with that focus, which some people would say is kind of a rather like a right-brained male approach <laughs> to archaeology, which is looking at the map, the distribution, the, the trade winds, the marine trade, etc. And then it shifted more towards the feminine domestic spaces, cooking utensils, pots and pans, vessels, and then finally to the sensory aspect, which is the taste of the food itself. And this was brought on, I know we're going to talk about this in a bit, but it was brought on by working a field season at Monte Testaccio and studying the cleaning and studying the amphora potsherds, looking for dipinti, looking for stamps, and then thinking, but what about the oil? Mm. 
how did it taste? Was this premium oil or was it used just to clean the skin? So, and then of course, then I walked into my first bakery and this would have been, again, a good 12 years ago. Uh, I walked into a bakery in Pompeii and then another one in Ostia. And I remember seeing the mills for the first time and thinking that is the most unusual, striking and beautiful archaeological object I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated by it. I needed to understand how it works. And that's that's my brain. That's my father in me teaching me how things work, how to deconstruct things to understand the engineering and how, how these objects work. And I remember looking at it going, I need to understand how it works right now. Yeah. <laughs> and so I started just reading and reading and reading, uh, studying, pushing myself in a direction that was focused on food preparation dining spaces, the layout of the table, and then the sensory aspects of it, the touch, the smell, the flavors, and then aesthetic as well. Because, Mm. I mean, studying Roman bread, for example, looking at it, there is very clearly a functional aspect of it, but aesthetic as well. And, I mean, you look at the artistic portrayals of bread, uh, the frescoes at Pompeii, it's very artistic. Mm. So, I mean, there's food presentation practices in ancient Rome that are just as intricate as they are nowadays. So there was no end of fascination for me when I pushed this, my degree focus towards food at a commercial and domestic level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many aspects there. I mean, and we never stop learning anyway. And the more discoveries we do, there's so many things there that we can still discover and find and um, talk about and uh, I bet you have uh, many stories to tell us about uh, the ancient Roman you're absolutely right (laughs) you're absolutely right it never ends it never ends and even when you think you're done then you can go back and review something that you read a few years ago and go "Ah, oh I totally looked at that wrong Mm. this is what it actually means or uh, something else lands in your lap and you're not find that earlier. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're focused in more in bread and bread making nowadays, but you started with um, working in Monte de Statue and um, the olive oil. What what did you discover? What kind of um, evidence we have uh, from the olive oil there? So the excavation of Monte de Statue has been underway for a long time. And I believe they finished a few years ago when Dr. Romasal at the University of Barcelona, retired. Uh, But he was in charge of, I want to say, 30-plus years of excavation of that hill. And essentially, what they were doing was they would pick a certain section of the hill, they would core down and dig up a bunch of pot sherds, and then, obviously, they're looking for, not body sherds, but they're looking for rim sherds, which is a, a defining sherd that either has something that defines the form of it, either the handle or the rim, or it has dipinti or stamps on it, Mm. which allowed uh, the team to date the shirt and then using relative dating, thus dating that section of the hill. So you can see how the hill was filled in gradually over time as as a great big dump of potsherds. And then I, of course, was sticking my nose in and asking a bunch of annoying questions and, and, um, being a bit of a barnacle, you know, because I wanted to learn as much as I could. And I would go and sit with um, the team that was drawing and learn how to draw and then go and watch the, the team that was assembling Amphrey. And essentially, I mean, what Dr. Ramasal has written about is that that mountain is comprised of approximately 85% Dressel 20, great big, huge globular 
Amphrey that come from Hispania Betica. Ah, uh, right, okay. So, yeah, Rome very clearly had a contract with the producers in those areas. And then the remaining 15%, I think, was coming from the Eastern Mediterranean and Tunisia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At a certain point, I believe it was in the third century, you have a bit of a competing market for olive oil supplying Rome, and you can see evidence for that in the hill, which is represented by this um, North African and Eastern Mediterranean influx of sherds that are in the hill that are not Dressel 20 sherds. So that approach that they were taking is they were studying the stamp, the dipinti, the, the painting that is present on the body of the Dressel 20, which indicates net weight, tear weight, has consular signatures, which allows them to date the vessel and then the, the section of the hill. And then they are looking basically at the market itself at that time mm. and the movement of olive oil. But so when I was hunched over the buckets of water cleaning and looking at everything, I was thinking those thoughts. I was like, hmm, I wonder if this was cheap olive oil or if it was nice and punchy and and was nice and punchy what the romans wanted or did they they want a smooth mild olive oil were they using this to clean their skin or were they using it to fuel their lamp and so those thoughts were going through my head and i do remember thinking quite a fair bit about the sensory aspect of it did they enjoy like ideal a Mm. bitter punchy little punch in the back of the throat when i have olive oil or did they prefer something mild did they think that mild was better who knows and so these are the thoughts that were going through my head that eventually led me more toward food preparation the flavor palette preference the foods that were romans would make over and over and over again because like us it's associated with pleasure with people with spaces and places and i wanted to know more about how food controlled the average daily romans day Mm. and and their then their pleasure great so how much uh, do you think there was um this uh, aspect of uh, enjoying the, the the aesthetic element of the food played uh, a role in um, on an on an average um, romance um, dinner table let's say it's hard to say mm. it's very hard to exactly. say because <laughs> we we don't have that representation the representation that we have is coming primarily from the wealthy the elite class, because they have the paintings on the walls and they had the ability to write and they were written about. And so we can rely on what is written by the literate Mm. about the environment around them. But then, of course, there may be a bit of bias. Perhaps there isn't in some of it with respect to the frescoes that are on the walls of the villa and the draclinia, etc. You're looking at a, a projection of of status, conspicuous consumption, food portrayed as art, but food also conveying status. Um, It's the same as you and I putting a photograph of our lunch at like a a four-star restaurant or like a, you know, Michelin star restaurant on Mm. our Facebook. It's the very same type of thing. It's saying, oh, look where I am now. But everybody knows we don't eat like that every night. Yeah, yeah. So it's hard to say. Mm. Yeah, so there are many unknowns, which makes sense, obviously. Maybe we can um, discuss it a bit differently. Like, um, so for example, most people ate outside or ate at home, the, the normal people. Uh, they had the facilities at home to cook or they had to, to rely in um, public dining uh, out like a popina 
tavern, whatever we want to call it. According to Anna Maria Soto, approximately 50% of Pompeians did not have cooking facilities in their home. So again, to kind of contrast that with something that Patrick Foss said, which is that perhaps some of the portable hards that have been found uh, in the Roman archaeological record and that are referenced in the writings of Juvenal, for example, they may have actually been evacuated along with people that left um, and survived um, mm. the Vesuvian eruption of 79 AD. But uh, the archaeology at present shows that there weren't a lot of cooking facilities inside of the smaller dwelling spaces, the insula, where the working poor lived. So they relied heavily on the papina, capone, the bars, taverns, stew houses, etc., uh, and the bakeries to get snacks, to get food that they either ate in-house, for example, the so-called Thermopylium of Diana at Ostia has quite a fair bit of seating inside and out. At Pompeii, those seating spaces are smaller if, in fact, there was seating on the inside of these places, but they also have the masonry benches outside. So people may have been eating outside. They may have taken the food back home. I mean, we know they probably didn't have takeout containers, but mm. I don't know, maybe they maybe they kept tabs on who had bowls and or maybe you brought your own bowl. I mean, these are things that need to be explored further, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So can we extrapolate for the rest of the Roman um, cities that it was a similar situation? We have, have we found similar things in excavations across uh, ancient Roman cities that like most people, like 50% or more, they were relying on uh, takeaways in a sense? I'd say that just looking at Ostia and Pompeii, for example, and Herculaneum, you can look at the three of those towns together and see commonalities mm. that support that theme. Mm. Uh, fine, yeah, great. Uh, makes sense anyway. I suppose, yeah, most of the cities or the bigger cities were crammed as well, so people were living in buildings in three, four storey high or more, so you didn't have the facilities to cook at home. Yeah, exactly. Some mm. of them did, um, but then some of them didn't. And those buildings were always a fire hazard mm. you know, because of all the small fires that were being lit in, in those tiny little rooms, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds, uh, it sounds like a very dangerous uh, proposition to cook um, at home. So we, obviously, most of um, the people who had cooks or wait out in um, Thermopolia, let's say, these cooks were usually slaves, uh, were paid laborers. Um, what kind of, um, where were they coming from? What was their status and, and, um, and their background? Do we have some information? I know, obviously, it will be very scant information, but do we have anything? Mm. Uh, with respect to papina and bars and taverns, um, I can't say for certain the common understanding is that they are family owned and family run but then you would have also required help where they got that help i'm not certain with respect to commercial bakeries we can rely a little bit on the writings of um, cicero for example or apuleius and the golden ass to describe what those workers were like and mm. The, the brutality that they faced. For example, we, you know, we have Cicero who depicts them as criminals who are working off time or um, enslaved people who are running away from servitude or Apuleius who very beautifully and very compassionately describes that environment in a manner that not only depicts what it's like to be a mill worker, for example, or quite possibly a, a bread kneader, a dough kneader, but also what it's like to be an animal in that environment. And that's mm -hmm. one thing that I love about the Golden Ass in that chapter about the bakery is you don't often see this in Roman writing, but his depiction of these people 
and their scabs and the branding and the missing hair and what it's like to be a donkey in that environment and to be laughed at and to be whipped showed me a degree of compassion Mm. and also showed me a degree of honesty. I mean, it shows us all of that. And it depends on how you read it. You may think, oh, there's a bit of poetic license being taken here. But it feels to me that it's being portrayed in quite a truthful manner in order to make the reader feel sorry for both the workers and the donkeys. So I consider that to be an accurate portrayal. But, you know, we don't see that necessarily on the frieze of Urosaki's, um, the, the baker at the Porta Maggiore in Rome. And we don't see that either on a third century frieze or third century bas-relief sculpture of a commercial bakery environment currently at the University of Bologna. You see when it's coming from the proprietor's perspective, who are most likely the people that commissioned these sculptures. Right. You're seeing a very clean, very uh, controlled environment. You're seeing a division of labor and everything is running in a functional manner. The bakery workers themselves are all dedicated to the task at hand. And then the dough formers, the dough kneaders, who I'm most interested in, are looking attentively, a foreman or a, a proprietor who's showing them how to do their job and showing them what the final product should look like. So these are the impressions that we get of those workers. And so we can either believe the proprietor or we can believe the literary record. The truth is probably somewhere in between. Yeah. But I guess what interests me most is, well, one of the things that interests me is looking at that division of labor that's very clearly portrayed in sculpture and contemplating the golden ass and Apuleius portrayal of that environment and those people. And then I take that information when I study bread formation and the method of manufacture. And I think, who among those people would you put a knife into their hand? Like, would you put a knife in the hand of these people? Would that, would that be safe? Mm. Would that be in the best interest of everybody working there? Or would you give them a tool that couldn't injure somebody? if there was uh, an uprising or anger or a fight in this environment, in the hands of people that are working in a hot, smelly environment that operates at nighttime, that is staffed largely by criminals or enslaved people, would you then use a knife if that could potentially contribute to a fight or injury in that space? Or would you be using a tool that is less of a threat to the safety in that environment, less of a threat to the proprietors or the foremen. So that, you know, that environment, the portrayal of it, both in the literary and archaeological records or in sculpture, informs the tools that may have been in use in those environments. And it's, you know, it's fascinating to think about that when you look at how that environment is portrayed and what the lives of those workers must have been like. Yeah, I think that's very important. I mean, that's not something we think of very often nowadays, to be honest, um, about the people back then, I think. Yeah, it's a very, very good point that you're making here. Because um, obviously they made such amazing, consistent food for everybody, but who were they and how they've been treated and uh, what was the, yeah, all these actions, the, all these questions that you're raising are very valid. And I don't know if we, we will ever have any answers. No, it's, you know, when there's a, a lack of, or when there's minimal evidence, you have to take what you have 
to shape some ideas or to start conversations. But in some cases, it's difficult to conclude. Yeah. I mean, it's even modern day bakers, from my experience, and uh, chefs. And, you know, working in a hot kitchen is a dangerous and, you know, environment and also tempers flare and the people get oh, angry. So tell me about it. I mean, that's like, again, using modern experience to uh, and adding that into the interpretive process is very valid. I used to work in uh, fine dining and I was in those kitchens for years in my 20s working with cooks who were alcoholics. They were angry. They were exhausted. They were always tired. And you were walking on eggshells around them and learning from them at the same time because they were very talented people. But they were working in really stressful environments where there's a lot of hierarchy. There's a lot of bullying that happens. Mm. And I observed this in my 20s and I just watched them and I learned, okay, this is a kitchen environment and it's very dysfunctional, but it's also very exciting And there's a lot of talent, you know. So how does that compare to those environments uh, 2,000 years ago in ancient Rome? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of, I mean, the higher classes, obviously, they had cooks and the, a lot of the cooks were brought from Greece, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah, so there was a lot of chefs in that respect. <laughs> Maybe not celebrity chefs, but there were some talented, very talented chefs that they were cooking for um, the elite, the elite of the time, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. I'll be back. After this short break. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So I think the Roman food was uh, was influenced a lot by 
Greek, obviously by Greek cooks, but also what other aspects um, uh, the Roman food, what other cultures the Roman food got in the influences from? Uh, do we know? Like, what did they get from Etruscans, for example, or any other culture around? Yeah, one of the things that I study is watching where certain bread forms come from. And so, you know, without delving into the evidence that I'm discussing in a few books, chapters that are around the corner and in my book that's going to be coming out next year is looking at how ancient Rome absorbed the bread culture of surrounding Mediterranean cultures Mm. and how they took those forms and used them for similar and then different purposes. Because these forms, like for example, if you look at the two BBC articles that I wrote over the last year, one is about Arculata and the other is about the uh, Libomadorium, which was just portrayed uh, on the walls of Pompeii. They just excavated it in, I think it's region 10, uh, earlier this year. And so you look at those two forms, you look at where they came from, and you watch their movement from, let's say, the Eastern Mediterranean, or Greece, into Magna Grecia and the colonies, or coming down from Etruria, for example. But then you realize that a lot of these cultures had contact for hundreds and hundreds of years. So when did that transmission happen? When did this a specific bread form uh, move from being a ritual form to being just a domestic form or a commercial form or just everyday food? Mm. Uh, whereas a couple hundred years earlier, it may have been a sacred bread that was offered to the gods. Um, and that's so something that's something I'm very, very interested in looking at the evolution of those forms and the transmission of them culturally. You know, you can see, for example, in Tarquinia, Tiberi, um, Etruscan uh, mortuary frescoes, the banqueting frescoes that adorn the walls of those tombs. You look at, sorry, it's in the necropolises in Tarquinia and Trivetri. If you look at the dining benches that are in front of the people that are portrayed as attending this this death banquet or banquet with the, the loved one who has passed, mm. there's bread on those tables. And they're stacked cakes that look very similar to the Panis Quadratus loaves that were excavated from the bakery Modestus at Pompeii. And so there's a bread form that is 500 years earlier than the archaeologically archipotanical examples Mm. that are found in the oven at Pompeii. And you see it on a fresco that's dating to, you know, 5th or 6th century BC in Tarquinia. So you know that that is present in Etruscan culture, but it may have also been present in Roman culture at the same time in early Roman culture. Yeah. But, you know, it, it came from somewhere. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Um, great. Um, so basically you've been an experimental food archaeologist and a hands-on person and cook and all that stuff. I mean, you must have made lots of um, recipes, and uh, aside from bread, but also different dishes and food, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, and me being a very greedy and very curious person as well, I want, uh, uh, in an interview that you gave a few years, I think, ago, you said something about um, custards and uh, patinae and the cheese dishes. And um, you talked basically about uh, the, end, the end product is incredible. And uh, it seems like they incorporated ingredients that we would be genuinely hesitant to, to combine. 
And I was wondering what, if you could elaborate a little bit on this, what kind of ingredients uh, uh, they combine and uh, what was the end product, if you remember. I could reach for the low-hanging fruit, which is garum, but I won't do that um, <laughs> because too many people talk about garum. And my friend Sally, Sally Granger, is she is an expert in that field and she has long demonstrated that uh, garum is a very complex and pleasant additive for both sweet and savory dishes in ancient Rome. For me, though, I would go for um, my second love after bread, which is cheese, cheese making. Mm. Cheese making in ancient Rome, the smoked Velabrin cheese. When I made that, I was completely bowled over, just completely knocked over. First of all, by reading about and researching the Velabrum and a seedy red light district that produced the best cheese in Rome. And I was like, yeah, man, take me there, you know? And, um, and then making it using fig rennet, fig sap rennet, which, you know, again, is it's a little touchy. And I've warned people on my website, I'm like, eh, be careful. If you have allergies or skin problems, right. maybe don't use this because some people that, you know, at fig sap. It's the same as dandelion sap, the white, creamy, bitter sap that comes out when you cut a dandelion stalk or you cut a fig stalk at the root. And Columella tells us that if you don't have access to rennet, you can use cardoon sap or fig sap. And so we have fig, fig trees all over the property and constantly running out there, <laughs> much to my husband's dismay and cutting cutting figs off when they're underripe just for the sap. And he's like, stop doing that. I'm like, I can't, I'm making cheese. Um, and, uh, and using it as rennet. And so when I made the smoked Velabrin cheese, I started just straight from, straight from the very beginning all the way to the end from curdling, I think it was goat's milk that I used for that, curdling goat's milk using the fig sap. Amazing. And then compressing the cheese using a press like using a screw press, which is exactly what they used in ancient Rome for uh, compressing food products and getting as much liquid out of it as possible. Uh, using that and then smoking it outside, um, using the correct wood out in our, uh, we've got a pizza oven, but it's, um, it's a ceramic pizza mm -hmm. oven. Smoking it overnight and then pulling it out the next morning, golden. Yeah. And my husband just looked at it and went, oh my God. And I said, yeah, we're, 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 we're going to make this often. We're going to make this a lot. <laughs> and then we tasted it and it was like manna from heaven. It was unbelievable. And I couldn't believe that we'd made it simply by, you know, relying on archaeology of the technology of, of, of cheese making technologies and descriptions in the literary record. This is incredible. So that, that was my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, in terms of, um, so you said you used obviously gold uh, milk, right? And fix up to, how much fix up do you need for this kind of, uh, to, to make it work basically? It varies. It really does. And I find that with cheese making, every time you do it, it's like you're, it's, it's like a loaf of bread. You're dealing with a very unique personality and mm. it's going to do what it wants to do and you have to work with it. And so there'll be times where they make the milk reaches its boiling point. You drop in a little bit of the sap and boom, it works. Sometimes you need to reheat the milk again if it doesn't separate after you, you, you take the heat down. Right. Uh, you turn it off, you put the sap in. If it doesn't work, you bring the milk to a boil again and you add a bit more sap. On occasion, like on occasion, I'll even boil the stalks of the fig uh -huh. tree. So I will, in, I will cut past where the sap is coming out 
halfway through to the stalk, not the woody stalk, but the shoots where the figs are growing. Mm. And I'll take it right off at um, where it meets the woody stalk. And I'll split them open, boil that, uh, reduce it to ex- to kind of get a little bit more of the sap out of the, st- the stem itself, the shoot stem. And then I'll use that in addition to the sap. And it works like a charm. Yeah, that's the dedication uh, to the craft. Um, and do you say, yeah, yeah smoking Some meat. would call it an <laughs> obsession or an illness, a mental illness, but at least I achieve a goal at the end of it. So, yeah. <laughs> I choose to ignore these people, yeah. <laughs> they don't know what they're talking <laughs> <Me> about. <too. laughs> uh, you said you smoked it with uh, what kind of wood? Or do we know what Ooh, kind of wood? apple wood. Apple wood, okay. Yeah, fantastic. That sounds... Uh, Extremely good. I mean, would you compare it with anything that you from our modern age? That make any sense I to mean, compare like, it? I'm I'm a huge fan of smoked gouda, mm. um, but I mean that's store bought, commercially produced smoked gouda in a massive factory somewhere nearby, or maybe it's not nearby. What I loved about it was the rind. The rind was tough and chewy and smoky, and then the inside of it was creamy, almost creamy like brie. And I mean, and you could smoke it even further to firm up Uh the inside. So, I mean, we did two batches where we smoked it and it was a little bit softer and then we smoked it longer and we got a nice clean cut, but it was, it was still like, as soon as it hit your tongue, it would get like a Havarti, it would get creamy. And so we were just like, we just lost our minds. (laughs) We, we, we thought this was just amazing. You know, and now and now I'm going to produce it again. <laughs> now I'm like I need to make, I need to make a another batch. But the the the, the funny thing about it is you end up using a lot a lot of milk, mm. and it produces a tiny little puck of cheese that's maybe a little bit bigger than the palm of your hand. You know, a bit, a bit oh, rounder no. than the palm of your hand. Oh, no. But it's worth it. I have to tell my friend Ned Palmer, who's a cheesemonger and also. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to tell him about that cheese. <laughs> He has to make I have it. his book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, He's like the British cheesemonger, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, in terms of, um, yeah, so basically these techniques, like the smoking was primarily for preserving, but you think obviously the taste element was important, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm drawing a blank right now on the literary reference. I, I want to say it's Marshall, but I could be wrong. But just discussing that, the best cheese is a smoked Balabran cheese that comes from, you know, the the, the CD district, the red light mm. district uh, along, you know, in the Balabran of Rome, which is right next to the Forobuarium, the cattle market, right up against the Tiber River um, and very nearby to Emporium and where the food stuffs would come in at the Tiber and be stored in the warehouses. So it must have been some very bustling market area. And that this is where the best cheese comes from. Mm. There's another Roman literary reference to preparing bread. And I believe it was Pliny who said it. I could be wrong. But he specifies that once you've prepared uh, this loaf, it should be golden like smoked cheese. Mm. And so to use that reference as kind of like a goal for something that is visually perfect that color of a, of a golden bronze like smoked cheese tells us that smoked cheese was quite well known and quite popular in ancient rome how fascinating yeah i love it i love it 
Thanks for sharing this uh, with uh, with us. You're welcome. So in terms of, uh, yeah, so we talked about yeah, cheese. Cheese is very important. And um, the techniques of uh, creating creating these cheeses and um, olive oil and wine and brining uh, olives. Uh, do, do we think that um, these techniques obviously evolved over the thousands of years up to before pre-industrial, um, but, pre-industrial age, but do you think um, they remained kind of similar throughout the Mediterranean or uh, before before the age of the electricity, obviously, in the fridges and refrigerations? Do, do, do we think that they were kind of similar? Well, I, uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, I mean, if, if you should read or uh, listeners can delve into Robert Curtis and David Thurmond to look at the evolution of food preparation technologies because they did evolve and they did change, yeah. um, but they were always manual. Right. As far as their efficiencies go, sorry, they were manual or driven by an animal. But as far as the efficiencies go for, you know, the materials that were used, volcanic materials, lucitite, for example, that may have changed their efficiencies depending on the type of material that was used for, you know, making a trapatum to crack and remove um, olive pulp, for example, or a bread mill from like a hopper rubber uh, to a rotary mill. Uh, what that did for efficiency and increased production mm. was probably why those technologies evolved. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely love studying those technologies more. So I, I love, in some cases, being able to use recreated uh, technologies. Yeah. In a perfect world, I would love to see a day where there was some funding available to reproduce a Pompeian rotary mill and then get a donkey uh, and very gently coax it along because I'm not, I don't want to recreate animal cruelty. Yeah. Uh, I'd be feeding it bonbons and little treats <laughs> to get it to walk in a circle and gently rubbing its back saying, please go in a circle. To see just how efficient they were and to see how it is that they worked when they were being used for long periods of time. Yeah. Like something that I mentioned in the Eat This podcast was how smooth was that rotation if the pox in that volcanic material was packed with flour. Right. So you'd have to consider that it lubricated the the, the meta, the, the hourglass portion, the rotary portion of that mill to some degree. Mm. And, you know, now, of course, you know, we're using mechanized technologies that are obscenely efficient and high production, nothing in comparison. Yeah. And also they are much more like hygienic, let's say, for the lack for lack of a different um, word. But yeah. it's more, more pure, let's say. Everything is more pure. And I think another argument we can make um, is that while today we, we have all this amazingly efficient production, food production, we are disconnected from the actual food production. So we kind of forget that. And then there's, mm-hmm. then we come back and say, okay, but in the past, the food was better, tasted better, it was more pure, it was uh, more healthy. And there's all this kind of argument that, uh, all the arguments basically <laughs> that um, oh, back in the past was better, but most likely we know that it wasn't, <laughs> right? Yeah. And with you, with bread, you know much better that um, the flour wasn't pure, was probably had a lot of uh, <laughs> sand or whatever, and it was bad for your teeth. And Yeah, this is a fascinating conversation where, you know, archaeologists have to be very careful about romanticizing the past. Uh, all of us in general have to be very careful about romanticizing the past, and yet we do, because, you know, the vast majority of us 
love history. Mm. Uh, we love our grandparents. We love our ancestry. We love to learn how it is that our ancestors survived. How did they live on the farm, for example, like in my family? Uh, how did they sustain themselves by growing their own food in you know, a TV allotment in Ireland, for example? That type of information helps us to understand what daily life was like for our ancestors. Mm. But when we go back to ancient Rome, I mean, yeah, it was, a, it was a brutal life. Like, I mean, one of the things that I think of all the time is, okay, yeah, we have this efficient society where, you know, you've got restaurants and bars and bakeries and living spaces and baths and temples. And, but uh, how many of these people were in paint every day? How many of them were pulling their own teeth out because they had a, a toothache? Um, with respect to food, I have been lucky on occasion to um, see human remains uh, from Pompeii. And remarkably, the teeth were in pretty decent shape. Mm -hmm. And I remember looking at the molars and thinking, eh, there's not a lot of wear. Of course, you, I mean, you'd be looking at um, adults that are in their 20s or 30s, maybe in their early 40s. And I'm looking at their teeth thinking these teeth aren't nearly as bad as I would have expected them to be. So I think it's safe to say that the bread wasn't as gritty as you would assume that it is. Mm. Practice of using uh, sibs in the bakery environment would have taken out a fair amount of inclusion. If there was dirt or bugs or all the things that you would expect to be uh, in a in a bakery environment that did not have its food safe certificate. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Excellent. That sounds great. Um, thank you very much. I think um, we can wrap it up around here and um, with this, we can end it, we can end it with this, with this um, um, thought here. And um, yeah, tell us a little bit about um, your future plans, uh, your website and so on. So, yeah. So what I'm doing right now, is I'm doing a fair bit of academic writing, which is equal parts fun as it is misery. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so I, I've been writing quite a fair bit over the last few years since completing my master's. And then I'm also in the process of preparing to undertake my PhD. So I'm getting ready for that. I'm putting together a book on the subject of Greco-Roman breads, their origins, evolution of the forms, and looking at uh, each form and where it comes from, the ingredients, the flour grades, all that exciting stuff, or at least I think it's endlessly exciting. It keeps me up at night. Some people, it might make them scratch their head a bit, <laughs> but um, I'm happy to see that there are enough people out there that are interested in the subject, and I'm, I'm happy to supply them with more information. Brilliant. So in addition to that, I, I do uh, get up from my desk and I bake for Gold Belly. Uh, two days a week, I sell uh, Roman bread that I bake and ship throughout the United States every single week uh, for buyers who aren't interested in baking, uh, but are interested in having it made for them. And this is a way that I'm not only helping to fund my PhD, but I'm also sending money back to charitable organizations in Italy, for example, the uh -huh. Panis Quadratus loaves that I make, all of the proceeds go to Fodum de Giovani in Pompeii, which is a youth charity that helps kids get off the streets and learn skills, gets them inside, gets them socializing with other kids. And so the money from the Panis Quadratus goes there. And then the Arculata, which I'll be making 
in the next month or so, it's going up in gold belly before the holidays, before Christmas. That is going to be um, supporting the Gatti di Roma, the, the, the feline colony at Largo di Torre Argentina in Rome. Mm. Brilliant. Uh, so we we saying that the bread is uh, from goldbelly.com, right? So people if, that's if, right. Yeah, they can look there. And we we ship only in in the states, unfortunately, yeah. because of food regulations. Oh, yeah, of we course. I can only ship within the the states, and yeah, that, that's still that's a, a massive <laughs> area and a massive. Uh, um, yeah. Brilliant. Um, and um, obviously, your website is tavolamediterranea.com, so people can go there and look uh, some of your fascinating articles and um, recipes and ways of making cheese or bread. And um, from 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 the articles that I've read on BBC and Atlas Obscura and on your website, I mean, there's, there's so thorough, so much information and so many things that I learn all the time from there. So I can't imagine your book, <laughs> how amazing, uh, I think, how exciting it's going to be. So Thank you very much. So, yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah, I look forward to writing more on my site too once I can crawl away from the academic writing and the and the preparing the book, which will be geared more towards a public audience as opposed to an academic one. So mm. the, the, the trick of shutting off the academic brain and writing um, for the public is a bit of an exercise in itself. But um, I look forward to stepping back into that sphere again and writing more for my site and uh, and getting this book finished. Great, fantastic. Thank you so much. And um, looking forward to hearing more about your projects in the future. Thank you so much, Thomas. I appreciate it. It was great to talk to you. Brilliant. Thanks for listening. I've been Thomas Dinas, and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. To get your podcasts early and ad-free, please subscribe to my Patreon page where you can also get exclusive recipes and extra podcast content available only for Patreon backers. See you soon. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.